G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Our first guest, Walid Shubat, and uh, we'll talk about Walid in just a few moments, a former radicalised jihadist terrorist until his conversion to Christianity in 1994. And Walid's son, Theodore, is joining us as well. To you, Walid, and to Theodore, welcome along to 2020. Thanks for having us. Uh, Wally, let me come to you uh, first of all. Uh, We in Australia have very heavy hearts at this time, given that uh, jihad has touched our shores this week. I think you're aware of the unfolding situation as it was there in Sydney's CBD through the week, Uh, a jihadist attack and two innocent lives lost. Uh, What are your thoughts on what you were seeing from the United States uh, from what was going on here in Australia? Well, we issued a warning three months ago on our uh, website, shubat.com, titled the ISIS Manifesto, in which after or following the Australia's largest terror raids and France's first airstrikes on ISIS, the spokesperson of ISIS, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani al-Shami, called on all ISIS supporters to launch inside attacks on Western population, and one of them was named as Australia, strictly, and France, of course, Canada, the U.S., in which all experienced very similar attacks. So the warning was in its place. In fact, we, first, we were the first to translate that manifesto. It was caught first on a laptop of a Tunisian ISIS. In fact, it was no secret to us. We, we know the Arabic. We access the Arabic language, and it's all over the websites, calling on Muslims to carry out what is called jihad radar, which means the repulse jihad and jihad at tabit, jihad by perfecting the killing methods. We, we translated from the Arabic language even how they will use all sorts of methodology, the jurisprudence given by ISIS. We translated some of that. A 26-page manifesto by ISIS detailing the jurisprudence, in other words, the allowance by Islam itself to carry out such terror attacks. And in it, it talks about how to perfect it, how to perfect the killing uh, and all these things. In fact, even using scorpions, which they're using currently in Syria and Iraq, in which we also posted yesterday and today articles showing they're using canisters that basically will spread scorpions, literal scorpions. This comes from the roots of Islam when they Mm. used it against the Romans and the Persians and so on and so forth. Well, we might come back and we'll talk about the scorpions in just a, a few moments. But while we're just talking about this jihadist attack here in Australia... Uh, And uh, some of our listeners won't be familiar with you. You've been our guest here on 2020 a number of times before. Uh, Just let me uh, ask you to reflect for a few moments on your own background. You used to be a radicalized Muslim, uh, willing to die for the cause of jihad until you converted to Christianity in 94. Can you lead us just through, uh, just in a nutshell, uh, your story as we get uh, our conversation underway today? 
Well, I came from an American mother and a Palestinian father, lived in the Holy Land. My mother visited the Holy Land when she was pregnant nine months, and I was born there when she arrived in a little village called Bethlehem, where Christ was born. I lived there till I was 18 years of age. But <clears throat> during that time, I developed a hatred towards Israel. Of course, Palestinians hate Israel. And was imprisoned for rioting, planted a bomb in a bank, and later on came to the States, was involved in the PLO and the Muslim Brotherhood after that, which shows how far back, this was early 80s, how far back the Islamist infiltration into the West. And in 500 colleges, you have Muslim student unions. I was involved in these activities. Uh, in fact, my mentor was Jamal Saeed. He was the colleague of Abdullah Azam, the real founder of Al-Qaeda, was a Palestinian from Jenin, the village of Jenin. So I was involved in this movement from the roots of it. Uh, in fact, there was a report uh, just co- last week about uh, Ziad Abu Ain, a terrorist who planted a bomb in, the, in, in Israel. Years ago, at my time, I was one of the defense people to defend this guy. And he, was, uh, he died through a heart attack. They're accusing the Israelis over it. But anyway, my roots really stems from the beginning uh, uh, embryo, if you will, and the jihad in the West and the Muslim Brotherhood and so on and so forth. Okay, the warning came that there would be uh, jihadist attacks in nations around the world, and you mentioned that you'd been warning uh, months ago, and uh, for many Australians, uh, they recognised that there was a potential threat of a terror attack on our soil. Uh, but uh, but many have been taken by surprise uh, this week. The word, uh, it really hits home when uh, these things do actually take place on our soil. When we talk about what's going on in the mind of someone who is a jihadist, uh, you are the person to talk to. What do you think might have been going on in the mind of the jihadist who uh, undertook this attack in Sydney this week? Do most jihadists think the same way? Uh, Did you think that way? Yes, absolutely. Uh, The idea of uh, terrorising the enemy stems from Islam itself. Uh, the uh, social media, by and large, in the Arabic language and foreign languages, have the apparatus to show the Muslims what to do. So a lot of times the media, and this is why Shubat.com has been warning about this coming to fruition three months ago, for the Australians, for the Canadians, for the Americans. Because the problem with the West, when they talk, let's say, about ISIS, they think it is only exclusively the areas of Iraq or the areas of Syria, they do not understand that many of the other terror apparatuses have joined ISIS in what is called bay'ah, or giving allegiance to ISIS. And many of these organizations have joined ISIS. So when we talk about ISIS, people think, oh, this is Syria and Iraq. But let's not forget, you had several joining ISIS and giving allegiance to ISIS, like Jundal Khilafa and their sympathizers. That's in North Africa. You have Ansar al-Sharia in Libya. You have the Taliban in Pakistan. Of course, you had 145 students uh, blown to smithereens, shot in in Pakistan. It's another huge, it's probably the largest terror attack in this year. You have the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan also in Pakistan's North Waziristan join ISIS. You have a Tawhid battalion in Pakistan, Afghanistan also join ISIS. Then you have a Nusra in Lebanon join ISIS. 
you have also Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen joined ISIS and Sarat Tawheed in the Hind in the Indian subcontinent, also Ansar Bayt al-Maqdis in the Sinai Peninsula, and Jund al-Khilafah in Egypt. These have sympathizers all over the globe. So now they're working collectively. The problem with the West, it is media. It does not show the big picture of this entity. You have people in China joining ISIS from the Xinjiang region, which is in is the Uyghurs, the Muslims of China also are joining by the droves to join ISIS. So you have from all elements, Chechnya, you name it, are joining ISIS, and you have their sympathizers globally all over the world, including Australia, and they are there monitoring the social media. In fact, we showed in the ISIS manifesto how these terrorists are being trained to use very sophisticated explosives. That's what's coming on the pipeline. And the problem with the social media, it does not take down those YouTube videos. In fact, I have urged everybody in the world to, to write the FBI, write the government, and here they are. YouTube refuses to remove the training videos. And we're not talking about small-time training videos. We're talking about how to build Simtex, RDX, how to build rockets, rocket launchers, 80 videos in, into how to perfect the arts of building rockets, even from using regular manure to come up with the uh, fertilizer, you know, the chemical fertilizer to use for weaponizing rockets. You can get it from farms and manures. And so uh, this is very easily undetected by the governments, and they have perfected the methods of being undetected. And the social media refuses to fight the war. In fact, I believe in the future, governments are going to realize this is the problem, and that is social media. ISIS rises through social media, and we allow it in the West, and that's been the major problem. Wanting to invite our listeners to be a part of our conversation today, you might have your own thoughts on public perceptions of radical Islam. You might like to express your thoughts. Is Australia in the grip of fear after this week's Sydney cafe siege? And is the work of our governing authorities enough to protect Australians from the terror threat? Our two special guests, Walid Shubat and his son Theodore, is joining us too. Uh, let me ask you, Theodore. Uh, Theodore, you're also an author when it comes to uh, these types of issues. Uh, your perceptions yeah. on things that have been unfolding this week, not only here in Australia, but you also mentioned the terror attack in Pakistan. Uh, what are your thoughts on how yeah. people are responding to these sorts of attacks? Well, in regards to Australia, I mean, it's the same thing that's been happening in the United States, same thing that's been happening in England. The plague and the disease of toler tolerance, religious toleration, ultra-equality, have really been, the, I would say, the main source of all these problems because everyone, uh, everyone puts toleration at the expense of a nation's security. So, for example, I'll give you some, some uh, examples of what I'm talking about. In regards to Australia, in September 18th, of this year, in the year 2014, uh, there was a Muslim man carrying an ISIS flag in Sydney, Australia. He drove in front of a particular Catholic parish, and he began to scream, kill the Christians. And not only that, but he also began to scream that Christian children need to be slaughtered. Now the police, uh, and this was done in front of a Lebanese Maronite Catholic church. So. And this happened right here in Australia. I mean, not here. I mean, I'm not in Australia, but it happened right there in your, in your country just months before this, this cafe hostage situation took place. And then you had another situation in Australia in which there was um, 
a Muslim man who stabbed the two officers. That happened also in the same month of September. Sure, and we're, we're familiar with those, uh, those incidents, yep. <clears throat> and so the, the question then is, what does a nation do about this problem when it has, for one, this obsession with tolerance? So we, we're always upset. For example, in Canada, there was a, a Muslim man who murdered uh, an officer and he injured another one. Well, the Canadian government was monitoring this man for over a year before he made this terrorist attack. And they were monitoring his Facebook. I found his Facebook and began reading it. It was filled with all sorts of jihadist material, jihadist paraphernalia, anti-Christian material, calling Christians idolaters and pagans. Why didn't, in other words, my question is, is why didn't the government stop this man before, before he shed innocent blood? The problem with the modern era is that we say, well, if the person hasn't killed someone yet, then there's no point in arresting him or apprehending him. Well, why do you wait for the damage already to be done and then arrest him? This man in Australia who, who hijacked the cafe he was already known as a fanatic. He was already known as a fundamentalist. His wife was already known as a fundamentalist. If you know someone is a fundamentalist in your society, if you know he is anti-Christian, if you know he is violent, then why not stop him before he sheds innocent blood? Why wait for the damage to already be done? This is the problem. This is really the source of the problem. I see not only in countries like Australia, but also in all of the Western world, be it in the UK, be it in North America, be it in Western Europe, people put toleration at the expense of human suffering and human life. Well, there might be that listeners who would like to contribute to our conversation today, and uh, you might like to contribute your thoughts on social media and the availability right. of opportunity there for terrorists to uh, raise their profile. Our two guests, Walid Shubat and his son Theodore Shubat, are with us. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. We'll need to be brief on calls. Let's hear from Michael in Richmond in Victoria. Hello, Michael. Welcome along to 2020. Can you hear me? Yes, Michael, you're, you're yeah, on air. I was going to say, if you talk to a Muslim and that, you talk, people are very confused, you see, because there's a lot of mixed messages out there. And obviously, uh, unless you do, you know, further studies and you really understand religion and, you know, spirituality, people struggle to understand, you know, uh, whether, you know, they're not, you know, whether they're radical or not. And there's, it's just a lot of confusion around Islam. And I think that's one of the issues people deal with because they're not very educated with Islam. And number two is, there's a lot of fear around Islam. I mean, the, the point is you speak up against the Muslims and people, you know, know that they're going to get a baseball bat and whack it over their head. And, you know, Christians are very easy targets in a sense that you can talk about Christians. Michael, and, let's know, hear from our guest, uh, Walid. Uh, when you hear what Michael is saying, is what is the differentiation between someone who's a radical Islamist and someone who's a moderate Islamist? Well, that's a good question because you have the type of moderates, so-called moderates, that are very Sufi Muslim, like in the United States you have Faisal Abdel Rauf who wanted to build a mosque, they would think he's moderate, but he's not. In fact, in the Arabic language, you monitor what he says, he supports Hamas and Hezbollah. So in the West primarily, we have to understand that, that revolutionary Islam gets its comfort zone in the West and lobs itself back into the East. The Iranian Revolution started in France and lobbed itself back into Iran. The Muslim Brotherhood grew in the West, in UK, 
lobbed itself back into, in Qatar as well, lobbed itself back into Egypt. And so the finding mechanism that really is the embryo is the West. And so we have to understand when they speak in the West, they speak with forked tongue. They speak in a language that seems that Islam is moderate religion. But we have to understand that the West doesn't exist. Australia doesn't exist. So it can either fathom Islam or doesn't fathom Islam. You have to be like a paranoid driver. and You have to say, well, there is a problem with Islam itself. Islam needs to be banned. Mosques need to be banned because a lot of these programs come from the Saudi Wahhabi infrastructure using Muslim minority affairs. In fact, if you look up the term Muslim minority affairs with my name, you will see with Shubat, you will see how much this influx into the West really is guised under moderate Islam, when in fact it's not moderate at all. And so we have to understand that Islam, no Muslim scholar would say, uh, I denounce Sharia. Can you name me a single Muslim scholar you know who would say, I denounce Sharia? In fact, I had the same debate with a Muslim scholar in Barbados. I flew all the way to Barbados. He gave an hour lecture of how peaceful, loving Islam is. And I asked him the question. I said, look, Sharia Islam demands that a woman, if she marries a non-Muslim and she's a Muslim, she's to be killed. Sharia Islam says if a mosque is built, it's considered an Islamic waqf or an embassy for Islam, which should never be dismounted as a mosque forever. Would you denounce this part of Sharia right here and right now in front of this Western audience? He said, of course I won't. I said, then Islam isn't peaceful, and you're not peaceful either. Any further questions, it's over. So the problem is that the media divorces Islam from terrorism. Well, if Islam is divorced from terrorism, how did Islam spread all the way in Egypt, in Syria, the Ottomans, the Abbasids, the Umayyads, the, you know, the Fatimids? All these Islamic dynasties spread through jihad warfare, and all of a sudden we're divorcing the entire history of Islam from the current terrorism. That doesn't seem to work. Since when did Barack Hussein Obama become an expert on Islam to give his view, or George Bush become an expert on Islam to give his view that Islam is a peace-loving religion right after 9-11? It is not a peace-loving religion. This is a correct argument that no historian would denounce. I don't find any historian who would say jihad spread through peaceful means. So this form of peaceful Islam is really the crux of the problem, and the West needs to become a little more Islamophobes. Yes, it is healthy to be an Islamophobe, just like you are a, a driverphobe, just like you are, you know, phobic about many things. Some phobia is healthy. So to be healthy is to understand there is a danger here. It's called Islam. And as long as we do not address it, Australians will die, Canadians will die, Americans will die, English will die, French will die, Westerners will die, Christians will die. And that will continue until the entire West finally wakes up and bans Islam completely. You can be a part of our conversation. You may have a contrary alternative view to what you're hearing today. You are welcome to call us to our number 1-800-316-316. That's 1-800-316-316 to be part of our talkback conversation. Thank you to Michael from Richmond in Victoria. Let's hear from Robin, who is in Mount Morgan in Queensland. Hello, Robin. Yes, hi. Um, are you there? Yes, Robin. Okay, yes. I, I am just so happy for this opportunity to talk to Walid. Um, it's, um, I've got a lot of his tapes. Um, he just really 
I'm right up there. And when I heard him talk, I was just so enthusiastic because he's. Um, I've been with uh, a lot of Pakistanis, mainly um, Daniel Scott has informed me a lot. And I've been warning people for years. And they're all thinking that I'm just um, doomsday speaking and they just ignored me. Robin, but, uh, um, while he's listening in, what would you like to say to him? Yeah, um, I, I actually consulted... Uh, well, I mean, I went to your site recently because, I mean, I was just wondering if it's something that we can do, um, like, for the cause, because, um, you know, I've had a... I, I've got a, a, a fairly strong understanding of, you know, the dangers and, and that of... It's been about 20 years, and, um, you know, I've been frustrated that Westerners just are so... Um, so relaxed about it. In fact, I've been re- I've been watching um, films about the Second World War recently. These were military films um, for the American military um, during the Second World War, and it was really interesting because um, they're going from a basis of biblical knowledge. It's amazing, and they're they're spelling out the causes of the war, which is religious. You know, in that case, for Japan, even you know, or whatever their worldview. It's always an anti-Christian worldview that starts these wars and um, terrorise the world. But that's nothing in comparison with what is coming up soon. Robin, let's hear from Waleed and and his thoughts on the things that you're sharing. Waleed, your thoughts on what Robin is saying? Well, Robin makes an interesting uh, view, and she's talking about Second World War. You know, Second World War, we had to fight the Ottomans. Second World War was Sir... Was Sir... uh, What's his name? Uh, The Nazis. First World World War. Yeah, yeah, fighting the Nazis and fighting also Japan. Now, mm. Japan is an interesting focus. You talked about Pakistan as well. The problem stems from religious equality. In those days, they didn't yes. view religious equality as we do today. So we today say religious equality for all. I believe in two kinds of equalities, equality of opportunity and equality under the law. Any other equality it doesn't square well with me. If a person's in prison for murder, he shouldn't have equality. He shouldn't be voting. And so we allow this equality in the democracy to go way too far. And I'm sure Theodore would love to also comment about the religious aspect which you brought up. It's really a religious war, Second World War, First World War. There are religious aspects to those wars. And Theodore, I would love to if yeah. you chime in. Well, if you look at World War II, you brought, up, you brought up the Second World War. It was really, I would argue that the Second World War was really the last crusade. It was extremely religious. For example, when you look at uh, the Japanese, even the Japanese flag and the symbolism and the significance behind it, it's the symbol of the sun goddess that they worship, Amet uh, Arsu. And also, of course, we all know about how they used to worship the emperor. But what many of us don't talk about is the Buddhist uh, connection in Japan and how the Japanese believed that they were going to restore the true Dharma. Dharma being a Sanskrit word meaning the true teaching of the Buddha. And they were going to go into China and they were going to control all of Western Asia, uh, sorry, Eastern Asia, and they were going to restore the Dharma in these lands. And the same thing goes with, with Nazi. Nazi. Nazism as a religion was very Gnostic. You know, this, this idea that the God of the Old Testament was evil. And one of the reasons why they wanted to slaughter all the Jews, actually, and no one really talks about this, is that they saw the God of the Jews as this evil, man- maniacal, barbaric God. 
and that the, the Old Testament is this savage, disgusting book filled with violence, and the New Testament, and they believe that the, that, the, that the disciples and that even Jesus Christ was an Arian. The New Testament is an Arian document. The New Testament is Arian by its nature. And see how peaceful and loving it is. And so, in fact, in Nazi schools, you know, in Germany, they used to teach the, all of the Scripture, Old and New Testament. In Nazi education, they said, no, 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 only the New Testament. Strip away the Old Testament. And so it was really this hatred toward the Old Testament that was at the root of Nazi ideology. So it was very religious. And then so the same thing is going to happen in the future. And, of course, many people will say that I'm wrong about, about my views on Japan. But if you, if you study uh, what we write on Shubat.com, we believe that uh, Japan, when you study what's happening in Japan, with the increase of radicalization in Japan, with, um, with the attempt by many Japanese politicians, including the Prime Minister himself, Shinzo Abe, wanting to restore pre, uh, pre-1945 Japan, it looks like Japan is also on the rise as a, as a military power and also as an enemy. And also when you look at the uh, – also, also I want to keep in mind, Sufism. We need to focus on Sufism as a dangerous ideology. Why? In Second Thessalonians, St. Uh, Paul says that the Antichrist will go into the temple of God and say, I am God, as though he is God. So when people, people who disagree with us in the Islamic Antichrist, they say, well, Muslims don't believe that man can become God. How can you say that – how can you believe in a Muslim Antichrist – when, a, when no Muslim would ever say, I am God. Well, that argument is really brought to naught when put against Sufi doctrine. Because in Sufi doctrine, they have a belief called fana, which is really the obliteration of the human soul. And it is when the soul is completely absorbed into the presence of Allah to the point where the soul and that human being no longer exists. The only person that exists is God. And so in Sufi doctrine, when you read the writings of Rumi and the writings of other uh, Sufi ideologues, they said that when it comes to, when the Muslim reaches this state of consciousness, he declares, I am God. And when you look at the Ottoman Empire, where was it? It was centralized in Istanbul, in Turkey. What is the main form of Islam in Turkey? Sufism. What was the main form of Islam in the Ottoman Empire? Sufism. In fact, the Janissarians, the elite warriors of the Ottoman Empire, were all Sufi. They were all part of the Alevi, Bakhtashi order of Sufism. And so what is, what is Turkey trying to do now? They're trying to revive the Ottoman Empire. What will be the ideological and spiritual underpinnings of the Ottoman Empire? It will be Sufism. And so once you, once you connect these dots together, then it makes perfect sense that in the future a Muslim leader will declare, I am God. He will reach this state of Sufist enlightenment and make this declaration, this blasphemous declaration. Wow. It, it makes all the sense. Okay. Robin, thank you so much for your call. And you can be a part of our talkback conversation today, one 316 Two guests, Walid Shubat, former radicalized jihadist terrorist, until his conversion to Christianity in 1994, his son Theodore, also our guest this hour, 1-800-316-316. And we'll be back with more in just a few moments. It's Neil Johnson with you on 2020. Two guests this hour, Walid Shubat, former radicalised jihadist terrorist. His son Theodore is also on the line with us. We're talking through issues today, terrorism, jihad and the significance of Bible prophecy. Taking your calls too and you can be a part of our conversation 
conversation on 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Uh, let's hear from Gary in Tambo Upper in Victoria. Hello, Gary. Welcome along to 2020. Uh, good. Thank you, guys. Um, appreciate the show. And uh, I was fortunate enough to see Wally Chibup when he came out to Australia in mission about four years ago. Yes. Book as well. Gary, and, very uh, quickly, what's your point? Well, I, I tend to agree with what they're saying, but I think the point is, and I heard it, someone on the press say, you know, we were so shocked we couldn't believe something like this happened. And as a Christian, and many of my brothers and sisters think we've been waiting because we have the, the, the Word and the Scriptures to read and know about this and know spiritually what is going on. But um, I think part of it is the fact that they are spiritually blind, but also they don't want to... I don't think they want to um, admit what's going on. Surely they can't be that naive, you would think, that, you know, they don't want to mention that word Islam. They don't want to mention the word Muslims. And this seems to be uh, part of the problem. Um, we're happy to sometimes persecute a Christian for standing up for Christ, but um, there's this complete reversal of roles. Just wonder what the guys thought of that in that situation. Waleed, uh, your thoughts on the denial that there's even an issue? Well, it's not really denial. I don't think the liberals and the governments don't know what's going on. It's not naivety either. A lot of times we think as conservatives, the liberals are just naive about what's happening. It's not the issue. The issue is agreement. If you look at many of the you know, Western jurisprudence, the liberals and the universities, they would tend to agree with Al Gore and Islam, and you see that Islam talks about environmental protectorates, which, you know, tickles the ears of the environmentalists that life does not begin at the moment of conception, as Christians believe. That's what Islam teaches. Life doesn't begin at the moment of conception. So really, we have to understand that Islam is really liberal. It is not conservative. When a Muslim says that the evolutionary theory is in the Quran, it is theistic evolution. It really tickles the ears of the evolutionists. So you will find the, the, the bulk of the writings of the liberals is in agreement with Islamic socialism as well. When Obama says share the wealth, he's bringing this issue also from what was called Islamic socialism. When the Muhajirun al-Ansar, the immigrants from Mecca to Medina, fled from Quraysh, the tribe that was persecuting the first Muslims, they were aided by al-Ansar, which helped them and shared the wealth. And so they have this idea, this notion that they could really work with a moderate form of Islam. So they really uh, uh, try to promote uh, Islamic democracy. That's what they say. So it, it, eventually we will reform Islam and come up with an Islamic democracy much better and, and work together with the Muslims much better than flabby Christianity in their view. This has been the view of the Nazis. It's been the view of many before, the communists and everything else. And so uh, this is what we're coming at, is really a war in civilization, in the Christian civilization itself, in which the Muslim Brotherhood says, we're going to use the liberals. And indeed, they're working together. Okay, thank you so much to Gary from Tambo Upper for being part of 2020 today. Let me ask you, before we take any more calls, Waleed, one of the latest articles on your uh, blog is about a new holocaust that started in Syria. What are your thoughts, very briefly, but uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on this issue of a new holocaust? Well, there is a, the process of eradicating Christianity that's going on in Iraq as well as in Syria, majorly in Iraq as well, in which all the Christians, 100,000 families maybe, you know, from both countries, are, are fleeing, are fleeing the country, and uh, are in Erbil, many of them, in the Hook, in the Kurdish areas. 
of Iraq. In other words, the really annihilation of Christianity has began in Iraq, which is really the oldest, and in Syria. Syria and Iraq really resembles the oldest forms of Christian civilization ever. They speak Aramaic language, the language of Jesus Christ. But fortunately, there is a, there is a response by the Christians, and Theodore has been you know, monitoring the ground in Syria, like the lions of the cherubim, Christians are becoming militant. And this has been the struggle, and that is Christian militancy versus turning the other cheek. And they're coming to the conclusion, even in, in Iraq, they're forming more Christian militias to defend <coughs> and to fight for the preservation of Christianity in Iraq and Syria. I hope, Theodore, you want to chime in? Well, yes. That? There's been many, many militias that have um, really formed in Iraq and in Syria. For example, you have the Lions of the Chetobim. You also have the Syriac Christian Council. And recently, Shubat.com, I, I had the privilege of interviewing one of the founders of a militia in Iraq, a militia called the Nineveh Plain Protection Unit, and uh, they have around five, they have around 35,000 recruits, but so far they have between 500 to 1,000 Christians training, and they are currently protecting churches from ISIS, and they are all also preparing to retake Christian villages that have been invaded by ISIS. So it's not just that the Christians are being are, are laying down and allowing themselves to be slaughtered. There are many, many militias that are forming, and I've named a few of them. But there's numerous of them, and they have formed, and not only that, but they have managed to kill uh, numerous members of ISIS and also have won several battles. We are taking oh, calls. Yeah Eastern, yeah, Eastern Christians tend to be different in their mindset yes. when it comes to militarism. Uh, we're taking calls, 1-800-316-316, and uh, we'll, sorry to cut you short there a little, let's hear from YY in Queensland. Hello, YY, welcome along to 2020. Hello. Hello. You'll Hello. need to be quick, YY. Yeah, I just want to ask, what, how should Christian respond to the killing of so many Christians all over the world? And how should Christians express this um, um you know, um, issue with our governments, because if terrorists kill, uh, you know, Christians, it seems to be getting more attention than when Christians are killed. Uh, Walid, your thoughts, how do Christians respond uh, to governments as Christians, we hear of Christians being killed around the world? Well, the response has been twofold. Some would say, turn the other cheek. But the argument against turning the other cheek is that in the West, especially Christians in the West, you know, whether we're, you know, evangelical Christians or even Catholic Christians, you know, we, it, we tend to support the rights of countries to defend themselves. Uh, Israel, you know, it uh, basically preempted the strike in 1967 and took Jerusalem. Uh, all Christians supported violence in this case. Violence is necessary. And so we tend to kind of think that the God of the Old Testament promoted violence at times, Joshua, so on and so forth. But then the God of the New Testament uh, tend to say, turn the other cheek. Well, I think there is a happy medium between the two. Uh, and I want Theodore, because Theodore has been really at the forefront of explaining Christian militarism. You know, we have Sir, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Anderson. Not Robert Anderson. Uh, when he fought the Ottomans. Allenby. Allenby. General Allenby. He was Protestant. He was evangelical. He fought the Ottomans. In fact, it was General Allenby that gave the wounding to the Ottomans uh, in, in World War I. And so we have, in the past, 
participated in warfare, both as evangelicals and, uh, you know, uh, Catholics, Orthodox, you name it. So at times it is legitimate to fight in warfare. And Theodore, maybe you yes. want to chime in. Well, I would also like to encourage the listeners to uh, go to our website and look up uh, the, the Nineveh Plain Protection Unit. Go and type in Shubat Nineveh Plain Protection Unit. You'll see the article we did on this we, and also the interview that we did of one of the founders of this militia. And in that article, there'll be a link that you can click on to uh, uh, donate to this militia. If you want to help Christians defend themselves, don't depend on your government to do so because they're not really doing anything. You have to, you have to defend the – you have to, I believe, support this militia because this, these militias are the only ones really making a difference in, the, in these countries, in, in, in protecting churches, in protecting Christian villages, and also in fighting ISIS. I but guess theologically, too, how, how, go ahead. I was going to say, I guess too, the idea of supporting Christians who are under such intense persecution within those nations, talking about Syria and in northern Iraq, is also yeah. a way to actually keep the Christian presence in those lands. Yes, that's also true. But to just give you a quick theological uh, explanation to the idea of Christian holy war or Christian militancy, people say, well, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Well, Jesus himself didn't turn the other cheek when he was smacked. When one of the officers struck Christ in the face, Christ never turned the other cheek. Christ turned around and said, why do you hit me? I've done nothing wrong. Or, for example, when, when, when the Jewish, Jewish officer struck Paul in the face in the book of Acts, Paul, says, Paul berates them, Paul chides them, he criticizes them for striking me. And he says that if I have done something wrong, I refuse to, be, to not be punished, meaning he was for the law punishing evildoers. Also in Romans chapter 13, we have probably the most explicit declaration of, of using force to fight evil in the New Testament, when Paul says that the ruler does not hold the sword in vain. He is an avenger to unleash the wrath of God. In other words, when people say, well, uh, vengeance belongs to God. The vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. They always quote this in Romans chapter 12. But yet, yet they ignore Romans chapter 13, the subsequent chapter, which says that the ruler is an avenger of God. Yes, vengeance does belong to the Lord, but that vengeance can be executed through the authority and through the ministers of government, through, the, through legitimate military of government, through legitimate authority. Uh, and so when you see these militias rising up, some of them are working with the Iraqi <coughs> government, some of them are working with other governments, but the fact of the matter is that self-defense is a God-given right given to every human being. And so when, when, when Christians, I mean, it's sad to see Christians denounce these militias, but we need to support these militias because if we don't, it could be really the end of Christianity in those lands. Well, certainly a huge issue to open up talking about Christian militancy in those uh, uh, scriptures that you're referring to, too, there in uh, Romans chapter 13. Uh, thank you so much to YY for your input today. Let's hear from Simon, who's in the Barossa Valley. Hello, Simon. G'day, Neil. How are you? Well, um, Simon, you'll need to be quick. Yeah, no worries. Um, Jesus said in his last you know, type of address to the disciples, Matthew 24 and Luke uh, 22, I think it is. Peter mentioned it quite often. Paul mentioned his uh, caution, don't let nobody deceive you. You know, as always, don't let no one deceive you. And then he went on to tell, you know, what's going to happen. Well, I believe, this is my personal belief, I disagree with your two guests there. I believe 
the Islam is a great deception because I believe the Roman Catholic Church is the great um, Antichrist and Luther and all of them great um, great men of faith, they all believe the same. Now, this um, great deception of Islam um, is going right through the Christian world. They've forgotten about the Bible and they're going on this Islam run. And uh, I just want, you know, just to warn people to study their scripture and uh, not to get carried away with this great deception. Okay, Simon, let's hear from uh, Walid. Uh, we, uh, we've had a conversation similar to this before, talking about uh, the Roman Catholic Church. and uh, But Islam, certainly, which one fits with the, uh, the scriptural uh, end times uh, prophetic focus? Uh, uh, Walid, your thoughts? Well, you know, when somebody says the word Catholic, it seems to make an alarm bell in the ears and the eyes of an evangelical. Well, what if I said Coptic? What about the Coptic Christians? What about the Eastern Orthodox Christians? What about all the other Christians? Well, if you look at the apostolic succession kind of Christians, if you eliminate them all under the guise of Catholic, the only thing left is the evangelical Christian to be the true church, and everybody else is false. But you see, Christ himself comes down to Egypt in Isaiah chapter 19. In fact, the believers in Egypt will call to the Lord, and God will send them the Mighty One. Who is this? Christ, the Savior. It says he will send them a Savior and a Mighty One. Who is that? Gird your sword on your thigh, O Mighty One. Who are the Christians in Egypt? They're Coptic. So if you say the word Coptic, it, it tends to throw the monkey wrench into this whole argument of a Catholic being the harlot of Babylon based on a verse of the seven mountains being seven mountains of Rome. But if you look at John, he says, he took me to the desert. The angel took John to the desert. There he showed him a city in a desert. Not Rome, not New York City, not, you know, uh, any other country. It is in a desert. It's Arabia. In fact, when you look at the Bible in Revelation, it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That's both in Revelation 14 and Revelation 18. The only reference to Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is in Isaiah 21, the burden against the desert of the sea, the burden against Arabia. And it says it pretty clearly with the same reference, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. When was the last time an evangelical had a class in a Sunday school which discussed Isaiah 21, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the burden against Arabia? What came out of Arabia? Islam. That's the harlot religion that really controls the entire Mediterranean region, that's where the Antichrist comes from, and that's basically, we have to study all the verses when it comes to the harlot religion, not just one verse. It seems to be an art of secluding verses that permeates the evangelical churches to pinpoint the Vatican as the harlot of Babylon. Once you study all the verses together, collectively, put them together, then you will find there's no way in the world it'll match, because when Babylon is destroyed, Jeremiah says, I heard the noise of her destruction at the Red Sea. That's a geographic locator that tells us where this desert place is. The Red Sea is right by Saudi Arabia. I don't like to cut you short here, Waleed, but thank you to that caller. Thank you so much to to Simon from the Barossa Valley. Time is running short. In fact, it's time to say farewell. Let me point people to the website, shubat.com. 
Uh, Shubat.com is the website where you can read the latest blog articles from Waleed and also uh, from Theodore, our two guests this hour. And uh, to you, Waleed, and to Theodore, uh, just been a pleasure uh, talking and I'm I'm sure we'll get an opportunity again next year to to talk. But in a week where we're very heavy-hearted, I want to thank you so much for your insights into these things. Thank you to Waleed and to Theodore. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.